All right, we're live. And I just lost the screen. Okay. <laughs> uh, it's back. So just give it a second for Google to send out its alerts and things, and we'll go from there. I usually give it to like 7.02, and hopefully that's enough time for it to kick off. I really wish there was a way to, oh, see, ta-da, it worked. See some people starting to um, pop in. If you're here, just say hi in the live chat so we know you're here. And I'll give it like another couple of seconds and then we'll get started. So introduce yourself in the live chat if you are here. And if, you're, if you can't chat, make sure you're signed into your account and then you'll be able to chat. Just sign into your, oh, Lisa's here, hey Lisa. All right, cool. So I'm sure more people will keep uh, rolling in as they do, but let's just get started. So today we have uh, Kristen, who's going to be talking to us about product analytics. So she actually focuses on product, but on the, it's some, it's, well, I'm sure you'll explain it way better than I do, but it's some strange, awesome mix of business intelligence, DevOps, and product, which is, mind-boggling and if I'm totally wrong there I hope it is still mind-boggling um, but it sounds cool the way you explained it and I def I've been looking forward to this because I think we put book this two months ago I've been waiting for this talk um, so I'm super excited to hear uh, what you work on and how you go about doing your product analytics I know that's such a an integral part of product now and it's so different from organization to organization so I, I just love how hearing how everyone does it what tools they use um, and all that sort of stuff so um, Kristen is going to do her talk she'll introduce herself uh, shortly and then after that we'll do a Q&A so in the live chat feel free to add your questions and um, we'll get to those at the end and make sure everyone gets their questions answered and because I totally forgot to introduce myself, hi everyone, I'm Jen. Um, I run Just Product and Just Product Jobs. It's a job board and community for product managers. We have a Slack and we have um, a weekly newsletter that goes out and we try and bring the product community together and also do this talk once a month where we bring in someone from our community and share their knowledge. Um, we've had two already, this is our third, uh, excited, and we're still planning out our summer one, so if you're interested in doing a talk in the future on anything product related, uh, either let me know in the live chat or um, email me after, hi at justproductjobs.com, and I'd love to talk to you so we can get more of these awesome talks going in the future. So, I'll be to stop talking and let Kristen do the interesting talking, so uh, without further ado, please take it away. Hello, can everyone hear me? All right. I can, so let's assume everyone can. Perfect, okay. Um, I'm Kristen Womack, and um, I, uh, I do have an intro slide, so I'll probably just share my screen right away and then talk a little bit about who I am, but at least you can see a face with who is going to be talking for the next couple of, um, for the next half an hour or so. Um, so, let me go ahead and share. All right, and can you see my screen? Yes, all good. Okay, perfect. So I'm gonna talk about product analytics and specifically about understanding um, what customers want without asking them what they want. So uh, talking a lot about that loop between um, build, measure, learn, and really focus on the learn portion that's coming from um, production and DevOps and um, what's happening that you can start to see patterns of what your customers are doing with your product that you might not be aware of or 
um, be thinking about. As I promised, there's an introductory slide. So I'm Kristen Womack. Uh, one of my favorite things that anyone has ever said about me is from my friend Kara and previous coworker. She said, you know, you've just had lunch with Kristen Womack when your face hurts from smiling, your brain feels bigger, and you have a new book to read. So that's basically the goal of this talk. Um, I'm hoping that I'll make you laugh a little bit. Uh, can't promise that your face will hurt from smiling, but I do hope your brain feels bigger, and I know for sure you'll have a few books to read. Um, so I'll be giving some book suggestions with each technique that I share. Um, I run a uh, company called Night Sky Webco, and we're a web consultancy that um, works on anything from product, websites, um, and APIs, and pretty much focuses on software development in the product space and in um, and analytics and APIs, just anything that really has to do with the web, honestly. And then I also am a co-founder of Hack the Gap, which is an all-women hackathon in Minneapolis, and we have a hackathon um, every January, so if you can get to Minneapolis in January, we'd love to have you. And my website is below, so if you want to know anything more about me, it's just kristenwomack.io. So today we're going to talk about um, product managers um, and how they can use analytics, so how we as product managers can use analytics. So product managers have a really special and unique role in which they are constantly working between the yin and the yang of the really big vision and the details of the day-to-day -day and making sure to keep them straight and also make sure that the day-to-day -day details don't change course too drastically for the bigger vision and that the bigger vision takes into account the smaller details. So uh, product managers start at the top, they set the vision, uh, evangelize their product, pitch for funding, build a roadmap, pour over data, iterate and repeat. And that pour over data, iterate and repeat cycle back is what we're really gonna focus on um, in, in our product talk today. So product managers build roadmaps. And that's a lot of what helps us to think about what we're going to be doing and how we're charting the course for our product. And there are all these inputs that come into product roadmaps, and I'm sure these are really familiar to you. So feature requests can come from just about anybody, customers, sales, internal, external. Um, they come from everywhere. <laughs> There's no shortage. Um, what competition is doing, customer feedback, market trends, um, all kinds of things. So uh, that usually ends up with, you know, you have your product, you have this vision, you start taking in different inputs, you start building it, then more inputs come in, and you might have a map that looks like this. So you keep slotting in things to go into your releases and different features. And pretty soon it's like as new features come in, it's kind of a, a shuffling game of like, okay, well, where does it fit? It's going to have to come after this. What gets bumped? What, what are priorities? So we're going to talk a lot about that today. So then once you're building everything on your roadmap, you're measuring everything, you're measuring, you know, bounce rate on your website or your product, uh, product page, revenue, customer acquisition costs, churn, uh, month over month growth, uh, daily active users, all kinds of different um, metrics. Um, and that is in helping us to get from that build, measure, learn cycle. And that data coming out is supposed to help us learn and figure out what is working and what isn't working, what to do next. But a lot of the measurements, especially if you're measuring like burn rate or velocity or how many features you're doing, um, monthly active users, you're really looking at uh, one-dimensional data, and that's what we're going to dive into. So as you have all these inputs and you have your roadmaps, somehow we still end up in this story hell where we're prioritizing hundreds of stories, 50 stories or more is really what I define story hell as. And uh, James Shore is the person who originally coined this idea. 
um, where you can't see the forest for the trees because you just have so many detailed stories and you've lost the bigger vision. So if you're not familiar with Story Hell, I, I highly recommend checking out James Shore. He's awesome, writes about Agile and all kinds of different things. Um, and so when you get into this mess where you can't see the forest for the trees, you start getting into the nitty gritty um, details and you, you can possibly lose the bigger vision, which is a huge risk to your product. And a lot of this happens because we get these type of requests. And this comes from Intercom blog, which is called Product Strategy Means Saying No. If you have not read this, this I swear you should bookmark this article and read it once a month. <laughs> um, just to remind you of how some of these features can come in. So like the estimated cost of a small feature um, isn't actually what you think it is. It's always a much bigger um, cost. Um, the boss really wants it. We can just make it optional. So it's all these different um, things, which, you know, a lot of it comes from, oh, all these people want it, or the competition has it, um, my cousin's neighbor said, and those type of things. So, you know, you really can get barraged with all of these. And um, I think that's how roadmaps get really messy. So I believe there's a better way, and I'm going to share five different techniques with you um, through a new job, through a new lens, um, that is the jobs to be done theory. So this is a theory that Clayton Christensen recently wrote a book about called Competing Against Luck. And his theory basically says that when we buy a product, we essentially hire something to get a job done. If it does the job well, when we are confronted with the same job again, we hire that same product. And if the product does a crummy job, we fire it and we look around for something else that we might hire to solve that problem. So this is analogous to um, thinking about how customers don't want a quarter inch hole or a quarter inch drill, they want a quarter inch hole. So thinking about like, what is the job they're trying to accomplish? Like if you're going to do your taxes, you might hire TurboTax to do your taxes or you might hire an accountant. Whomever you're hiring for that job is um, kind of the idea behind this. Your, your main objective as a customer is to hire a job to get a, uh, hire a product to get your job done. But when we're working on software, a lot of times I see this in many, many teams, uh, stories that are written as this form. As a type of user, I want some action, so the outcome. And this sort of misses that idea of what the customer is trying to accomplish, and it focuses more on too deeply and too specific on a type of person. So for example, I might be very different to you, but we might both want to hire TurboTax for the job to get our taxes done. So that would kind of, you know, like you'd have too many personas. I don't know if this has ever happened to anyone on the uh, call, but I've been in environments where, you know, all of a sudden we have like nine or 10 personas and then you sort of lose track of what you're doing. So in the jobs to be done theory, the assertion here is basically that, that as a persona is sort of irrelevant and both as a persona and I want to, as the action it creates too many assumptions. And, um, the, the suggested revision to this approach is basically to say, when naming the situation, I want to focusing on the motivation so that I can expected outcome. So basically you can say, you know, when I need to do my taxes and, and go through that in a different form, like focusing more on the job. And so they're saying that the job to be done is the real true metric to get to. So that sort of leads us into, back to when I was talking about the different types of measurements, um, you may or may not have already heard this, but what, measure, what gets measured gets done. So if you are focused on daily active users, then that's what you focus on. And you might be missing huge uh, different parts of your app that um, 
that are really important because you're just focused on that one metric. In sales, they might be focused on number of um, customers. And in customer support, it might be tickets. And pretty soon, the whole company is sort of fragmented because there isn't a singular sort of focus that everyone can then break their metrics down from. I'll get more into what I mean by that. So uh, Clayton Christensen also says, making meaning out of the jumble of real life experience of experiences is not about tabulating data, but about assembling the narrative that reveals the job to be done. So we're gonna walk through five techniques to improve your roadmap using that new uh, jobs to be done lens. So the first technique is to um, escape vanity metrics and find the one metric that matters. So I just wanna share a quick story here to illustrate what I mean by this. This is uh, a few years ago, I was working with a team and um, the marketing person would send out an email every single week talking about all of our different metrics. And one of the metrics was the number of signups. And um, that's what the blue line here represents. And so we were getting really steady signups every single day, every single week, every month, there was really very little variation or spikes in the number of signups. And then when we had a certain milestone of signups, um, I remember there was this big push to share it publicly and tweet about it. And so then I started really wondering, like, what does that even mean, though? What is that number compared to other people's, you know, other industry um, competitors or people who are in a similar um, business as us, but might not be a direct competitor? And then it got me thinking, well, what about how many people are actually active users? Maybe they just signed up and they're not really using the product. And that's what this yellow line represents. So it's like, as many signups as there were, we were still very flatlined on who was actively using the product. And so this is the blue line, the number of signups was really a vanity metric because it didn't really share or it wasn't really enlightening us to the fact that we had bigger problems, that people weren't really going through this funnel. So I started really diving into the funnel of sign up for a page, then sign up for, or visit the sign up page, excuse me, and then sign up for an API key how many active users come out of that, and then how many people actually become a valuable partner, an API partner. And I noticed that there were huge problems in our product from the visit the sign up page to the API key. So basically, when you visited the page, um, if we had 100 people, every, a good majority of them were leaving. I think maybe 20% were staying and signing up. And I think it's because we had 20 fields on our sign up page. So that was a you know, help me to think about like, oh, there's a huge barrier here when this person is trying to figure out what our API does and how they can go further into the product. So once we removed those uh, 20 sign-up fields and we brought it down to just a few, then we started seeing that number tick up. So after people visited the sign-up page, then people start, more people started to um, actually go through the sign-up process. And then when I started observing users in real life, I had some hypotheses based on this data, and I found that people were not becoming active users because again, there were real life barriers that were causing them to not get past that. And I did a lot of this by having an inquisitive mind and being really curious and looking at the data. So for example, with the active users, I went through the sign up keys every single day. And one day I came across, I was sitting with my data, the data analyst on my team and um, her and I, noticed that there was a cluster of people um, all with the same email domain from harvard.edu and they all signed up for an API key, but none of them had made a single API call. So um, we emailed them and we asked them why. And then when we called them, they said they were at a hackathon and they just couldn't get past um, 
using, they couldn't get past the sign up because the email didn't come through. Then when they tried to make their first call, they had some, some error messages that they didn't understand. And so there we could uncover deeper problems. So after all of this, we were able to remove several of those barriers. And in the, in the year following, over the course of the year, we had 44% increase in signups. And so that graph that I showed you um, just before took a sharp uh, upward trend after we worked on these. And that was because we kind of identified that we are using vanity metrics and we really dove into what were gonna give us more um, of what are called clarity metrics, um, which I did not coin. I can't remember who, um, who said clarity metrics, but that's a really valuable thing in diving into your data. So instead of just taking things face value on one metric, really dive in and figure out where different problems are. So your single metric that matters should be somewhere along retention and revenue. And it depends on where you are in your business um, or what type of business you're in. So the stage you're at, um, whether you're in the empathy stage, stickiness, virality, revenue, uh, et cetera, then you can sort of uh, figure that out. And all of this comes from a book called Lean Analytics, which we'll talk about in a minute. Another example is if you have a ride sharing app like Lyft, um, they might be measuring monthly active users. And we would all say like, yeah, of course we, they're measuring monthly active users. And that's something that people talk about as startup metrics that are really important. But if they were to start thinking about it a little bit differently um, around the job to be done, they might focus on the time to pick up or the number of calls or texts after somebody calls a car, but then yet maybe they can't find the driver, the driver can't find them, the number of canceled trips within a certain time frame of when they made that first call for the for, to be picked up. So the time to pick up might show an interesting um, drop off point in which customers are willing to wait. So maybe they're willing to wait three minutes or two minutes. Maybe they're willing to wait seven or eight minutes, but then at 10 minutes, maybe you see a, a sharp drop off. So then you know that what you really want to optimize for is that pickup time, like shortening it um, from the time of call to the time of pickup. And that might be another um, alternative measurement. So uh, Lean Analytics is a book that I swear by in terms of figuring out what your customers want. It really helps you to take things that are happening in production and understand um, what your customers want. And, and a lot of that comes from patterns and diving deeper past vanity metrics. The second technique is uh, data visualization as a tool. So spreadsheets leave the interpretation to the reader, and I believe this is analogous to shitty writing. Um, you don't ever want to put the burden on the reader. My background is in communications, um, writing, and uh, interpreting. And I've always tried to focus really hard on making the connections, especially when you're writing, so that your audience doesn't have to make the leap to understand what you're trying to say. So, for example, when you're looking at a spreadsheet, if you're looking at the spreadsheet week over week and you have many different columns, this spreadsheet only shows two columns, but if you're trying to show um the data and then also percentages of if that's 50 percent more than last week or 50 percent less than last week it really becomes the person who is looking at the spreadsheet it's there it's it's up to them to interpret what that means and we all have our different lenses of the way we look at things the way we interpret the world and so when i'm looking at one metric it might be um you know like the top one up there says like blog sessions 357 i might think that's bad whereas the person sitting across from me might think it's a really great number 
And so um, being able to compare things visually is really helpful. So if you take a look at this example, um, this shows us 13 years of data across nine different companies. And right away when we look at it, you can see that there's what type of growth trends are happening within each company. So for example, if you look at Yahoo, obviously they don't compare to anyone else on this chart in the same way Yahoo also has a downward trend in the later years where no one else does. And you can see Amazon, they sort of have this characteristic of being very lean, not very many um, employees, and they've scaled a lot in the last four years. Or I guess, this sorry, this is 2013. So from 2010 to 2013. Um, and you can see Oracle at that time had more employees than anyone. But the point here is that you can take one look at this and everyone can sort of be closer to the same place in interpreting the data. Instead of asking people to make the leap of knowing what you're trying to say. So if you have a spreadsheet with this data, you can imagine how messy it is. You're comparing numbers as opposed to um, visual images. One of my favorite authors, uh, Edward Tufte, he is a speaker and um, focuses on displaying data. And he does tours around the country. In fact, I think he's an international speaker. And if you ever have the chance to see him, um, you get all four of these books and he'll walk you through plenty of different examples that are even better than my example. Um, he's fantastic, and that's sort of my book recommendation for this technique. The third technique is to find user patterns. So when you track user patterns, you're more likely to discover how people really use your product versus how you think they use their product. Um, going back to the jobs to be done lens, uh, a lot of times we talk about our product, what our product does, how much venture capital we have, how many users we have, all these different things. Um, but what I would really encourage everyone here to think more about is the job that the customer is trying to accomplish. And maybe that's already how you frame up your, um, the way you're thinking about your product. But I do see when I go out into the world talking with lots of different teams, I see hardly anyone actually talking about that. And it's pretty discouraging, to be honest. And then I find software that looks like this. <laughs> this is actually uh, a credit union that I belong to, and I love them. I think they're fantastic. Um, but the problem is here is that, you know, they were thinking about how to build this website and they were thinking all the different information you could want. It's all neatly arranged at the top, home, ATMs, location, personal business, all these different things. And I believe that they were all, you know, trying to bring the best information and organize it in a way that's really easy. Um, but one thing that they might measure is like how, when somebody comes to this page, how many seconds does it take till they click on something else and where's the next path that they go? And it might be really interesting to find that there's a, a data pattern where basically anyone who comes to this page and then logs in likely has a wait time um, from landing on the page to logging in because basically you have to scroll all the way around to the bottom and come back up. So when you are on that first page, if you hover over any of these menus, and this one I gave you is for an example, is actually a generous example. So rates only fills up half the screen, but if you go to personal or business, it comes all the way down to the bottom of the screen. And so I can't log in, I can't get to that field. So I have to basically do a long swoop down underneath and like trick it to not go over that menu. And this happens on a lot of websites. And it's, it's you know, another way that you can figure out that the job is taking too long for the customer um, because, you know, when you take a look at the data, so I mentioned competing against luck and Clayton Christensen. Um, 
the book, the theory that I'm talking about jobs to be done comes from this book and I highly recommend it. Um, another gentleman, Alan Clement, he actually, uh, wrote a book called when coffee and kale compete and it's expanding on this idea of job to be done. Um, the idea of coffee and kale competing is like when I, I'm on my way to work in the morning and I want a pick me up or a coffee or, you know, something, something to give me more energy uh, or something to drink on the way to work. I am going to go get a coffee, but I also might change my mind and get a kale juice. Um, and so that's basically how he's talking about when coffee and kale compete. Probably not the most elegant explanation, um, but highly recommend both of these books. And the one on the right is actually free online. So the fourth technique is to be aware of the feature factory. And this kind of goes back to those first roadmaps I was showing you that were really full. I mean, just jam-packed to-do lists. Um, so product managers are responsible for answering two important questions. Should we build this and why? And this goes back to the intercom article about product strategy is about saying no. So there's a lot of times when we say, should we build this? And the answer really is no. And we need to be able to say no. Um, otherwise, we will end up in a feature factory environment. So when you are looking at all of your features in your application and you map them out onto a grid that looks like this, you'll find that most of your features don't fall in that top, top upper right quadrant. So that place where the star is, is like all of the people using that feature all of the time, whereas the yellow uh, warning signs on the left side are a few of the people, maybe all the time or most of the time. Um, and where you want to focus for your product is basically in that upper right-hand quadrant so that you are doing what's unique to you and your job and what your customers are doing. Um, but what happens is a lot of times we get all these requests and our products get really cluttered and, um, and we have we have a lot of features in there that are just not necessarily um, the best feature for our product. So this is an example where um, if you look across the top, you can basically think of all those search types as features and then each row um, is like customers. So one time I had somebody talking to me about one of the products I was managing and they said, we really, really need to add more features to this this particular product and um and they and you know it was like oh there are two million calls there's over two million calls every week into this product and so when i started digging in i had a data analyst on the team at the time and um she dug in and created this visualization so this kind of brings together that visualization component and um and also being wary of what you should build should you build the new features that people are asking for and what we found is that only one of the features was really being mainly used. The top three rows are the uh, top clients. Search by single SKU is pretty much the only feature anybody was using. The search by rating and the other two are really anomalies and they might've even just been testing those features, but really such outliers. Um, so when I showed this to the person who was requesting the features, it was instantly clear to them. And they were, they were just, they were like, yeah, don't build more features. Let's go focus on search by single SKU and how we can make that, um, how we can refine it even further. So this helps you when you can visualize data like this and you can put these type of filters together, then you can 
sit down with stakeholders or people who are requesting features and then you don't even have to say no the answer becomes really clear to everybody because um, the data is so clear in this way so a good example of uh, jobs to be done and how to think differently about your product is uh, so I brought up TurboTax earlier and this is one of the examples in Clayton Christensen's book um, but they were talking about how into it they were looking at TurboTax and they had all these, uh, they had sent out a customer survey asking customers what they wanted in the product. And um, if we were in person, I would probably ask you to raise your hand to see how many people here has sent out a survey asking their customers what they want. What they got back was um, 150 different types of requests leading to pretty much 150 different feature requests into the applicate, the um, the interview form that you use, enter your W-2, enter your 1099s, how much, you know, interest and dividends you have. So all of the features were really focused on that one specific, uh, improving that one product that people were already using. And then they started thinking about what the job was. And the job wasn't for customers to fill out that interview form. The job was for customers to get their taxes done. And so the team started thinking more creatively about what that meant and um, actually realized that maybe it didn't have anything to do with an interview form. Maybe it didn't have anything to do with entering any data at all. And that's sort of where they came up with capturing data by pictures and even using APIs to connect to uh, payroll systems so people could log in and their information would automatically be uploaded and they could just skip the process of entering information. So not only did this help customers with the job that they were trying to accomplish, but also it um, reduced different types of human errors that we all have when we're entering data and, and made it um, a lot easier for everyone involved. So there's a new book coming out this fall by Belissa Perry, and maybe many of you on, the, um, on this call have already are familiar with her work, but um, she talks about escaping the build trap and um, in a lot of her work, she talks about lean product development. Um, so really met that whole build, uh, measure, learn um, cycle. So the very last one, and this is a quick one to kind of uh, wrap everything up, but is to create intentional blank space on your roadmap. So you want to leave room for things that you learn from these data patterns, from log data, from the analytics that you're seeing. And um, I am a really big fan of building my roadmaps to look like this. So let's say we're in Q1, um, we, have a, we have our plan. So we sit down and we say, okay, for the next 12 weeks, this is what we're gonna accomplish. These are our success metrics and how we know if we've been, if we've accomplished what we set out to do. Um, and here's the plan, here's the team, everybody rallies around that one idea. <clears throat> a couple weeks before the end of that quarter, then we figure out what's going to be in Q2. And we already have some idea and we fill it up closer to that point. So using more of a, a last responsible moment techniques from the lean practice where we basically are not filling everything up up front because then that just becomes story hell and a to-do list, but more using room to think creatively about your product and leave room for things that, um, that you learn along the way. A lot of times when I use roadmaps like this, people who are not familiar with them give a lot of pushback, especially people who are giving you money or um, any type of leadership that you're sharing your product roadmap with, um, because it essentially looks like you're not going to be doing anything uh, in the coming quarters. So this is an education exercise in using your roadmap like this. 
Um, but I have found that this really helps me personally as a product person think very clearly about what I'm building. So in that lean sort of mindset, um, UX Strategy is a book by Jamie Levy, and she talks about how you can test your ideas cheaply and bring that feedback forward into your work. Um, definitely a book that I would recommend you put on your list if you haven't already read it. So to sort of wrap everything up, the idea is to log as much data as possible, sit with your teams, make sure you're understanding um, exactly what type of analytics you want to capture um, and how you want to talk about measuring those. Then think about interpreting them, and that usually means for me making it visual and putting it in some type of way that we can basically have um, meaningful conversations or meaningful um, analysis. Uh, if you start analysis and analyzing data before you put it into a medium that is really comprehensible, um, I think that can be kind of dangerous. Um, like for example, if you're looking at bounce rate on your website analytics you might think it's pretty terrible if you have a really high bounce rate. And maybe it is, um, but maybe it isn't. Maybe it means that when people are coming to your website, they're finding exactly what they need and they're moving on really quickly. Or maybe it does mean that maybe you ran a big campaign and you're sending everybody to a particular page on your website and there's a mismatch on where they should end up when they when traffic there. And um, so maybe bounce rate is really bad because people are, are not able to make that connection between um, your campaign and where you're sending them. So it really matters what other data is around it. So that's why you really want to interpret one type of data like that with other types of data around it. And the idea is to make more uh, I wonder if statements as opposed to we have really high bounce rate, we need to fix that. Okay, we have really high bounce rate. I wonder what that means. I wonder if we tried this. And thinking more experimentally with your teams and actually writing down your high pipe hypotheses. So you could say, I wonder if our high bounce rate is correlated with this, or I wonder if before you come to um, conclusions, and then when you run experiments uh, from your I wonder if statements, really bring that data back to figure out um, where you are in, in that product evolution, then test more things, and um, you can kind of iterate your way into understanding a little bit more about what customers want. And that's not to say that that replaces talking with customers or asking customers questions, um, but it should definitely replace asking customers outright what they want. We should be asking customers about the job to be done and, um, and more questions about their experience without being so direct. So I'll leave you with this last quote. Um, it's common when research is used to prove points rather than as fuel for imaginative insight. And so my hope is that as product people, we can really start to influence everyone around us to use data points and research to fuel our imaginative uh, side and work with teams to get insights before we just commonly say, it means this after seeing the specific data point. So that's all I have for you. I am Kristen Womack, and you can either reach me on Twitter at Kristen underscore Womack or on my website, www.kristenwomack.io. Awesome. Thanks. That was super interesting. I've been um, really interested in jobs to be done recently. I'm, you know, personas and all that sort of stuff and the whole, it's just been a shift. I feel like in the last year that a lot mm -hmm. of product people are really starting to move to this jobs to be done framework. And I've been looking for more opportunities to start to insert it because I think it's super interesting and a much better way of looking at it than 
Absolutely. The old school, let me, oh, this is Bob. Bob likes uh, riding a bike. And, you know, <laughs> where do you get with that? I think it's super interesting. And I, I'm trying to learn more about it. I'm going to definitely look up some of these books you mentioned. So we already have some questions in um, the chat. Lisa, they're long. And so I'm just going to read through. And I think they're follow on to each other. So um, maybe we'll break them down and more coming in as we're going. So um, do you have any advice for analyzing, summarizing, and presenting on user flow click paths to optimize the user experience to help improve the jobs to be done? For analyzing, summarizing, and presenting user flow, yes. Okay, yeah, so um, in my personal experience, I think that as much as there are out-of-the-box analytics tools like Google Analytics, um, <clears throat> Keen.io, um, all, all different kinds of out-of-the-box tools have so many good qualities and are so valuable. But I have personally found that the way I like to put that whole workflow or click path through the product together is to pull different data points and um, Every product I've ever managed or every team I've ever led, I've always made sure to have a data analyst. And I usually have the data analyst on the team. Um, a lot of times they're working with D3, which are JavaScript libraries that are very visual, or working with R, which is a um, programming language for visualizing data, and putting it together in a, in a format where it can be more presentable as opposed to out-of-the-box analytics. So sometimes I'm taking from Google Analytics, sometimes directly from log data, sometimes from um, uh, sign-up sheets. So like in the example I gave you with the APIs, a lot of the insights that I uncovered was from manual work that we could have never found in an out-of-box tool, which is like, okay, I see this one data point, now I'm gonna dive into the logs. And then from those logs, I can annotate my, my presentation. And there's um, a follow-up question to that one, which is, is this valuable versus tracking just the actual event? I think you kind of also answered that. But. Yeah, and I think that's the whole point is when you say, like, if you're always asking, is this valuable or is this noise or is this, you know, like, what is it before jumping to conclusions is really important. Definitely. And you mentioned uh, GA and Keen.io and then obviously the log data. Are there any other tools that? or um, oh platforms that you use for your analytics, your favorites. Let's say if you got to choose, if you got to set up your ideal platform, what would it, what tools would you use? Um, so I don't have an ideal platform. I would say the closest thing to it is probably Keen.io. I like their tool, but um, Looker is really great. Um, I mentioned Google Analytics. No matter what I'm doing, I always set up Google Analytics, always. Um, it's a great way to get historical data, and as they are developing the tool further along, you can um, you already have the historical data there, so it's like a good way to capture something um, that's super cheap. Um, yeah, I a lot of it is like putting it together in visuals, and the way and I already mentioned using R and D three um, basic spreadsheets too with uh, visualization and graphing things out. Awesome. Okay, uh, we have a question from, pardon me for butchering your name, I know it's going to happen, Pranav. Um, what are your recommendations on working with data analysts? And he's particularly interested in workflows. Um, yeah, so with data, so with data analysts as in people? Yeah. Yeah, so. Well, I um, imagine, that's my guess. 
Or I, I guess, as I meant, I was thinking um, between analytics and analysts. So, the analysts. Um, the people yeah, so with analysts, what I usually do is um, most data analysts that I've worked with are incredibly technical, usually are developers or were a developer in the past life or um, can run a lot of queries, whether di across different data stores. And, um, and a lot of times this data analyst, their workflow might look like I mean, they definitely come to the daily stand-up team. They're working with the developers. They're kind of bouncing around, sometimes pairing with different people. But the workflow that we usually come up with is like um, collecting data, getting really curious, um, coming up with a hypothesis that we both are like, oh, I wonder if this could mean this, and then figuring out what that is. It's kind of like um, more like a detective, I would say, like a sleuth, like going through things and having a very curious mind. So the workflow might be different day to day or even week to week or month to month. It's just not really a set thing. And is it usually, um, I, I'm expanding on this question, pardon me for now. Um, is it usually that you're sort of posing the hypotheses to the analyst or they sort of half-time dealing, hypothetically half-time dealing with your questions and half time looking for sort of green space and other mm -hmm. things that might pop out that could maybe inform the product in ways that you didn't even foresee. Yeah. So my, my personal belief is um, that I think the best work comes from teams and conversation and people bouncing ideas off of themselves. Um, I'm particularly allergic to silo type of work. Like I go off and do this and then you go off and do that. And we hand off something. Um, I believe in the Socratic method of thinking, which is basically like, I have an idea, like, no one goes at anything alone. No one can have any idea alone. Really, the best ideas come from, I bring up something that might say like, oh, um, you know, we're talking about making a lamp, like, oh, this light bulb could screw in like this. And then you might say, oh, but instead of having that fixture go right there, we could put the lampshade like this, and it could be a totally different invention. And maybe there's a third person that is like their ideas are spawned off of like hearing this idea and that conversation could never really happen in just one person's head. And so a lot of times with the teams that I'm on a part of, I really um, work towards that more conversational. Like, of course, there's things that people go off and do on their own, but really it's more of a Socratic type of bouncing things off of and then asking people like, oh, why or how and continuously following up with like those questions um, one after another. So it's, you know, I think like five or six whys. I love the whys. That's probably the only thing I do, even when I'm just planning anything in life. It's like, why, 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 why? And you always get the answer. It's actually, um, I think, part of the jobs to be done is mm -hmm. just keep asking why, why do they want that? Why do they want that? And that that's another way to get to like what, um, when you're dealing with stakeholders also, right? It's why right. do you need that? Why, what, these, they often come to you proposing a solution. You say, okay, mm -hmm. why is that a solution you want? And that's how you sort of get to the root problem. So yep, it's exactly. a very important question for product managers, I think. Cool. Um, so at some point you mentioned being very experimental and using the data to fuel, um, how you develop your product. How do you control all of your experiments? Like, do you have, in addition to your roadmap, do you have um, maybe a cadence to how often you experiment or do you sort of keep it to, you know, it has to run as long as it takes to get statistical significance. How do you control, like, you have a thousand mm -hmm. things that you want to experiment with. How do you choose which ones to mess with at a given time so they're not all conflicting? 
Yeah. So there's, um, there's a, this is like a whole nother talk, a whole nother, um, topic, but Done. Basically, month. <laughs> <laughs> um, actually I know just the person I just saw a really good talk on this topic and she comes from a chemistry background and she was actually talking about, um, how many variations you need to get to, uh, your answer. Like if you have, um, different factors and then across those different, like two or three factors, then you have, uh, I can't remember what the other one is. And so pretty much the, the, uh, smallest experiment you can run is like running through eight different scenarios. Um, but for, for me, um, so we come up with our 12 month or 12 week plan, which is basically a quarter. And, um, from there we are continuously meeting every week to plan, um, different things around the product. And we might have a list of experiments and then have them prioritize. And as we learn things, some of those experiments might fall off, but we will really usually say like, okay, um, really want to look at running this experiment, figure out how we're going to set it up and then make sure not to pollute the data by running too many experiments at another time. I've been in environments where people constantly use the word experiments, but then there's no real parameters. Like an experiment should have a hypothesis. Like I think these things will happen and either they do or they don't. And your findings are always going to be, um, probably varied from what your hypothesis is, but from, but you can, you have to like really actually articulate what you're trying to learn, what the objective is, how you're going to get there and how you're going to measure it. So yeah, I wouldn't run more than two experiments at once usually. It's a good rule of thumb. Unless, unless you're talking about very different parts of your product or right. things that aren't um, competing at all. Do you uh, use any particular tools for your A-B test or do you sort of feed it all back into the same analytics pool and logs and things like that? Like I know there's Visual Website Optimizer. Google has their own thing. There's tons out there. Yeah, so a lot of the experiments I've run have been more in the API world and uh, less A-B testing. I do have some A-B testing experience, but a lot of times it was working with teams who specialized in A-B um, testing. So, for example, when I was at Best Buy, um, we we didn't do any A-B testing. We went to the A-B testing team because like, only they can do that to the website, right? Um, so, yeah, um, some experiments that I might work on are, like, figuring out, okay, we have 20 fields on our sign-up form. What happens when we reduce it to like three? I think that we're going to increase signups like this. That's like one example. Another one is when somebody says like, oh, I think we're going to, we should run this, uh, we should throw out this new product and maybe it has 12 features. I might say, well, let's take a slice of that 12. Like, is there a pattern? And there's four different types and three within each of those four types. Well, let's take one of each of those and then build the most minimal thing. See if people are interested in it before we really build out the whole thing. And if nobody, uh, goes for it, then it's like, well, let's cancel that. Let's not invest in building the big, bigger yeah. set. Um, and running experiments like that. So like for that last one I just mentioned, you might run that experiment for six months and still work on tons of other things in your product. But it's like, if nobody really starts to sign up for that, that product, maybe it's not, it's not something that you should move forward with. And are those the sorts of tests where you would do maybe a bucket test or? you know, do, just roll it out to some percentage of users, you know, something like a form I can imagine for an e-commerce company, right? If you're, if you're experimenting with checkout, that's usually not something you want to experiment with. I'm going to change the whole checkout in this push and leave it for six, six months and see what happens. It's yeah. too high risk to change things like that. Like, mm -hmm. What do you do in those cases? So actually, um, 
I just, there's two examples that I would love to share with you that are not my own personal examples. Uh, but um, there's a woman at Slack, I think her name is Mercy Grace. Mm -hmm. And she just did a talk recently about how they roll out experiments at Slack and like what percentage of um, people they roll them out to. And I thought that was really interesting. Um, I can find the link to that talk and send it to you to send out to the audience here. Um, and then the second is um, in Susan Fowler's book, uh, the microservices book that just came out last December, she talks a lot about how to roll out different amounts of traffic um, in in this way. And I think both of those women have really brilliant strategies. But yeah, like rolling out to a certain percentage of the traffic, um, figuring out what's significantly significant to your, or statistically significant to your uh, specific experiment or user base or even industry is important. Yeah, I know that was, at least when I was there, which is now four or five years ago, um, that was a really common practice at Etsy was to do uh, bucket releases and test things that way. I, I, it's much safer, especially if you're working with a large audience and like the tiniest thing can mess with your revenue or whatever your main metric is. I find them fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of experiments can be um, not quite so technical too. So like even just thinking about giving a talk, like if anyone is going to like sign up for a talk in June, July or August for the next three that you're planning, um, you know, I might have a talk idea and let's say it's about what I just talked about. Before I submit it to you, I might have coffee with a few people and be like, I'm thinking about this idea and kind of like see their facial expressions, how they're interested in it, if they want to hear more, if the conversation goes deeper. If it kind of falls flat, you know, it's probably not a topic that you want to submit. So yeah. like there's other types of experiments that are less, that you measure less, but more observe. That makes sense. And it goes back to the lean methodologies too, the product development methodologies. Nice. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I think we have, if there's any other questions, please add them to the chat. Uh, we have one more here. Again, Pranav, I think it's uh, expanding on the analyst things. Do your analysts have any recurring deliverables? Ooh, that is, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, so the recurring deliverables, uh, I would say are like reports, like every month they would produce a certain report. Um, because you're pulling together different data points, um, sometimes you're pulling them in together in a way that might not yet be automated. So the analyst had a lot of, uh, the analyst that I worked, one of my, I should just say, my favorite analyst who I've ever worked with, um, she pulled together weekly reports. And then, um, you know, we kind of structured her schedule where, she could sign up for tasks within an iteration, but a lot of her time was more freeform and flowing. Um, so we made sure that she had at least like four hours of maker time every day. So half of her day that she could sit there and like be curious about the data, kind of dive in. Um, it kind of reminds me of like, she'd just go out in her boat and go fishing, you know? Um, another Wouldn't that be awesome if she actually got to do that while she was looking at her data? <laughs> another thing that uh, we did on a previous team we actually didn't have any analysts on that team at all. Um, but what we did, it was an XP team and there was eight developers and a product manager and a project manager. And that was it. Super lean team, 100% um, TDD. Uh, there was really not a big much like to do. Everything was um, really low ceremony. And, um, and so every day people would pair up on a task from the standup board. And then from there, every week we had recurring chores. So like every Monday, there was always a task to go log trolling. And the log trolling meant, let's just get curious about what's out there. 
And there were a couple of times that we found really interesting things that were um, either bugs that we were unaware of or things that could just be optimized in a different way that would make our product more efficient. Um, just really strange things that only human eyes could really find. So it's kind of like, you know, log scrolling was different than looking at the bigger metadata. And that's kind of what I'm getting at in a lot of this is like, be curious enough to spend time not necessarily just clicking on a button in your out-of-the-box analytics and say, give me the bounce rate, but really dig in and figure out, like, is bounce rate more at a certain time? Like, let's say you have a website uh, and you're at college and your bounce rate is super high. And maybe the bounce rate happens all at a spe specific time. Maybe it's like 9 a.m. And let's say that, like, 80% of your classes start at 9 a.m. Maybe they're all going there to double check their room or double check some information. And maybe it all happens at the beginning of the semester and it's throwing off your whole average. It's those kinds of, like, I wonder if type of thinking. I think that's I think an awesome note to end it on, too. And, oh, yeah, if you have more on it, go keep going. But that, I think that summarized the entire talk so well. It's really easy to think that there's a silver bullet for that. And SaaS software, like software as a service is fantastic, but it can sometimes lead us to believe that there's like the silver bullet that's just going to automatically fix something. And that happens a lot with out of the box analytics tools. So just like remembering that we're human and that are the humans that are using our products to get for the job to be done, like there's feeling and emotion and digging in and being curious about that's super important and shouldn't be lost in the world of software. Yes, please. Awesome. Thank you so much, Kristen. This was fantastic. I have pages of notes already. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you for having me. Yeah, and um, I, I know you mentioned you have a couple links. If you want to throw them into the Slack, um, the water cooler channel, that's where people usually post the, their show notes, I guess you can call them. And uh, sure. this will be up on the site by the end of the week. So it'll be archived for posterity. And I know I'll be rewatching and getting some extra notes. Uh, in my notebook here for my to-do list, my jobs to be done. Um, so thank you so much. And again, uh, we do these every month. And if you're interested in next month, please sign up for the Just Product newsletter at justproduct.co. And we will see you next month. And if you would like to give a talk, please reach out. We'd love to have you. And thanks so much for coming. Thank you, Kristen. Thank you.